Um, so well, let me check check in with you. Are we are we uh, we doing okay so far? Any any questions? Any comments? Any any BFOs? Y'all know uh, what a BFO is? It, it's a it's a blinding flash of the obvious. Yeah, I get I get those every once in a while. So uh, anything at all? story. Hmm? I don't have a story for everything, but I do have an interesting story. You were going back and talking about your father's generation, and we saw that video on how they would respond. Yeah. So when I was um, younger, I would be at my grandmother's house, and my grandfather, who I never met, passed away before I met him, was a photographer. And we would go in the basement, you know, and you'd hold up the little things up to the light, and we just always had fun doing that. Well, my cousins and I started finding these, um, the negatives, and it was like pictures of women with all these visible injuries. And I remember bringing it up to my mother, and she told me that back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, women would come to his practice as a photographer and request that he take photographs of their visible injuries because law enforcement wouldn't be doing that for them, and so that they would have that for their own evidence. Yeah. Well, that's an incredible story. Well, you know, you have to think about it. When did police really started? Um, I know in the in the mid seventies, when the police were trying to come up with some other solution. New York City police sort of started it all. They had what's called the the therapeutic policing model, and they taught us mediation. That was what I was taught on the academy mediation model, the instructor said, and, the, and there were certainly no photographs being taken uh, in, in as much of the 70s, so it, it makes sense that somebody would come to document it. Like, right. But they would tell us, and uh, the instructor told us, he said, well, when you go to a domestic, the best thing to do is just put the victim and the offender in the same room together. Yeah, that's what they said. They had a training film on this. They said, and uh, what you want to do is to calm them down and then try to negotiate and mediate. And every once in a while, you might touch one of them to show them you're compassionate. <laughs> but, but this was the, what they taught us to do. And then once you have the problem resolved, you can leave. And, you know, it's like, please, what in the world? But they didn't know. So it wasn't until the, the late 70s that we started to see photographs. Even the homicides, yeah. But anything else, not much. Uh, Polaroid cameras, uh, 80s, that changed uh, the direction of policing quite a bit. I remember a lot of officers remember those old Polaroid cameras that everybody had in their car. And we took, took those pictures, and then digital photography came along. That's, that straightened it all out. So, wow. Well, those would be interested to, well, kind of more of it, but I mean, still, what a moment. So, what did he, do you know what he did with them? I mean, they, did they give the photographs to the women after he took the yeah, so that they would have them as evidence for themselves, you know, and have, you know, validation yeah. of what they went through, because there may not have been a yeah. police report or anything else on file. Wow. Amazing. Anything else before we started back? I'm sorry. They, they would only have X amount of footage that you could use. When would you say that was? Where would you say that <laughs> about what they had to report? Yeah. No, I, it's the, the body cameras have changed. I think really revolutionized policing. Um, and, and, and you know, we're seeing mostly really interesting, good stuff. The guilty pleas are coming in on body camera footage. We've got, by the way, if you're interested, we've got a protocol at IACP, how to use body cameras for deviant sex assault. We did roundtables around the country with patrol sergeants and officers to come up with a pretty good idea of how to use them, when to use them, when to turn them off, when to turn them on, how to do the interview with body cameras. So I'll send it to you if you'd like to have a copy. Um, so, all right. Well, let me uh, spend just a little time. I know, well, I didn't ask this. How many of you are doing a, a risk assessment or some sort of danger assessment? Most are, okay, all right. 
And just to reinforce it, I mean, I know, you know, after a while you think, ah, they give me something else to do more paperwork. It's really not. I mean, we're talking about, you know, a way to kind of predict future violence is what it's about. I like to use it for other reasons, too, because I think there's a lot of information here that you need to keep officers safe, obviously. Um, because I've looked at officer shootings over the years, and mostly shootings, no risk assessment whatsoever uh, for these cases. And also, we have an officer in here. And it's, you know, the philosophy was when Dr. Campbell started her work at LAP, reduce likely, you know, future harm, helps everybody understand the risk. And I want to tell you, too, what I discovered up in Brooklyn Park, Minnesota. I was up there doing a training, and uh, it's a suburban police department of Minneapolis, and the chief's old military guy, and we were talking about this, and he was using LAP. And he also created another risk assessment a recidivism assessment that he uses. He told me, he said, Mark, when my officers go to the scene and they do these assessments, if it ranks high danger, he said, within four hours, my requirement of my department is for the officer, the sergeant, by the way, within four hours to send a copy of that report to the shelter, to the prosecutor's office, to probation, and to the advocate inside the agency. And the advocate inside the agency is also trained on ODERA, which is the Canadian Ontario Domestic Abuse Risk Assessment. And I said, Chief, that's exceptional. Why are you doing all that? He said, well, he said, my philosophy on this is that if I train my officers to ask a victim, do you think this person's going to kill you? And they say, yes. Why would I put that on a piece of paper and then put it in a, in a stack that has to be processed a day or two later by a detective. He said, that's kind of malfeasance if you think about it. Why would you not respond to that right away? It's kind of like, you know, the alarm's gone off on the bank. Well, we'll get there tomorrow. Well, that would be insane. Why would we not immediately respond to that? So I'm watching police do some interesting things with risk assessments that I've never seen before. Let's focus. Um, uh, you know, uh, High Point, North Carolina, another community that's, and I'm not sure whether you've ever seen this model before, fender focus model. Uh, the Australians are using it now. What High Point did, if you go down to High Point, it, it was, for years, it was the furniture capital of the United States. 2009, the economic, you know, disaster, all these furniture companies sold out, they all went to China. The economy went in the tanks. Gangs and drugs moved into High Point. They didn't know what to do. They called John Jay College in New York, and they said, have you got an expert on gangs up there? And they said, yeah, we can send you some people. So they went down, they analyzed High Point. They came up with a, a vendor focus model that really worked well with gang members. They left town. The chief realized, we got a real domestic violence problem as well. They came back. They created the High Point Fender focus model for domestic violence offenders in Point, And it worked. And it was a complete process where the courts, probation, police, everyone was focused on offenders. Every time an offender did something, they graduated to another level of focus by the community and the courts. They had a letter designation. So the, all the offenders knew, they were told this, you know, you, you violated the order, you did this, you violated bail restrictions, you're moving up. Probation kept a close eye on, close eye. So uh, I like offender focus because you've got so many offenders, you have a hard time figuring out where I need to spend my time and risk assessment. And this is what they're basically doing does that. So I like these uh, modern versions. The Canadians, the one they designed, and you're not going to believe it if you hear this, but when I was up there at the academy in Ontario, they wanted to demonstrate this for me. I said, yeah, I'd like to see it. They designed it specifically for patrol officers. This was a patrol officer risk assessment. And what it does, well, let me show you, let me show you the, the, the questions. It's a little bit different than the LAP, uh, prior domestics, prior non-domestic incidents, custodial sentence, 30 days or more, uh, failed uh, conditional release report, um, threat of harm, that's uh, suicide, false imprisonment, uh, uh, kidnapping, um, 
alcohol use, more than one shot. And you look at this, what is this about? It looks a lot different than the LAP. But what the researchers did, they went to thousands and thousands and thousands of cases in Canada, and they came up with this assessment, and it's pretty accurate, it's reliable and scientific. And there's a second part of this where detectives can take a patrol assessment and analyze it and predict with pretty good accuracy. Now, this is going to sound weird, but I've watched them do it. When they suspect the next assault will happen, and I, and this is again, it's a pretty amazing process. The when when the state of Maine decided to mandate all their officers do risk assessment, this is the one they're doing. Um, the Brooklyn Park, Minnesota police, they're doing this one inside the agency. So we're starting to see the police really get connected to these things, and I'm glad to see it. Uh, I, who knows what's going to happen in the future? Battered and pregnancy, another one that's also in the. Uh, LAP as well. Battery goes up to pregnancy. You know, and I, 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 my warning to patrol officers often is to be real careful with this. The offender will focus, you know, the, the, the assault on the fetus. That's why there's a Bible fetus law in a lot of states. Can't see the injuries. And uh, this is when you have to be real careful. And I, I'm not here to change your procedures, but my recommendation for patrol, patrol response when you got a pregnant victim, get a, get a paramedic to the scene. That's just a good, safe measure because it's uh, embarrassing for a pregnant woman to say he hit me in the stomach. Um, now you got fetal fractures and ruptured placentas, and you can't see any of that. So, kind of a warning uh, to wives here on that. Uh, and thing too, you all remember Yardley Love, the Yardley Love case here in Virginia. Her parents started a foundation, and they looked at risk assessment. They wanted to come up with one for young women 16 to 24, kind of, you know, the high school, college uh, population. So they put it in the app. I thought this was pretty clever. You can download it for free from Google Plus or iTunes. Chris? One in three women are victims of relationship violence, and it's often ignored by those who could help but don't. The One Love Foundation created a revolutionary app that makes it impossible to ignore relationship violence. Based on research undertaken at the Johns Hopkins University School of Nursing, this app helps victims, friends, and family make an assessment and determine the threat. It's anonymous, free, and can save lives. Be one for change. Join One Love. Now, that's not the only thing One Love had. They've got a lot of other great uh, uh, public service announcements, brochures for victims. And this is what these foundations do. Over in Western Pennsylvania, the shelter and the police department joined together and created an app called Are You Safe? So here was a dilemma. You know, the victims, even when you got LAP, the victims say, I don't want to answer any of your questions. Leaving them a piece of paper, sometimes it's not a good idea, or they don't want it, go away. Giving them an option to have a digital form risk assessment. This is what this is. And the beauty of the Are You Safe app is that when you download it, it will put the local services in your phone for you. So if you're offering this to a victim to say, look, I know you're upset right now, you don't want to do a risk assessment, take a look at this later on, you can download your phone and also give you the number of the shelter, break crisis center. And it's another way to put a risk assessment in the hands of a victim. And uh uh, William Gay is a stealer. His mother was killed in a domestic. He now promotes it around the country because it was only for Western Pennsylvania for a while. Now you can go anywhere in the country. Anywhere you are, it'll locate your phone, your GPS, it'll find the services, and then we'll put it in your phone. So I thought that was pretty clever. I'm William Gay in the Pittsburgh State, and I lost my mom to domestic violence. If you know someone who's in an abusive relationship, please don't be afraid to help. Let them know they can download a free Are You Safe app to determine if they're in a dangerous situation and connect them to the local domestic violence hotline. With the help of Are You Safe app, you just might save someone's money. So, Are You Safe? Again, 
app-based, digital, it's, it's all it's all new. And then the so Sparks, you work with Sparks with the Stalking Resource Center. Um you want to tell us about it. So I, I did that work a long time ago when we were part of it was part of the National Center for Victims of Crime Stalking Resource Center and Spark does the great work now. Spark has tons of information on their website about stalking assessments and danger assessments for stalking victims. They have free webinars on their website. But it's basically about recognizing what a course of conduct is, what that, uh, what some of the tactics can look like, and how those things can be part of a greater domestic violence, sexual assault, strangulation, how they're all interconnected. So Spark is a great resource. They're a, a technical assistance provider. If you have questions, they provide technical assistance. Um, uh, Dana and Jennifer are awesome trainers. So if you have stalking questions, that's the, the place to go. Yeah, and let me tell you that it's amazing because this the technology is moving so fast now, it's hard to keep up with. Years ago, technology wasn't a real issue, it was all line of sight. You know, the offender was actually physically following. Now it's in a digital world, it's online, it's really kind of changed. Uh, but the basics of stalking have really always been the same. I, I remember very well before we had stalking law uh, in, in Tennessee. We had to deal with cases, but we had to get creative extortion, threats, vandalism. We found pieces. And for some reason, that old style of prosecution kind of hung around for years. And when you bring a case to the prosecutor, you try to say, well, I've got a stalking case. They look at the evidence. They say, why don't we just charge them with burglary or vandalism? Let's pick a piece of this and don't charge with stalking. And then if you have an enhanced, you know, uh, you know, um, statute that brings it up to felony you can't get there unless you have a conviction for a misdemeanor stalking in a lot of states so we had a problem with the prosecution understanding it but we didn't we didn't misunderstand the offender 80 percent of our murders have stalking for the homicide we knew that and that's the national numbers too by the way and we have country music singers i don't you know know how y'all feel about the country music but you know they are you know millionaire hillbillies um, and so they all have stalkers, all of them, every one of them. I, it's amazing over the years how many stalking cases we've had with Dolly Parton and Reba McIntyre's got a driveway a mile long. Got a security guard in a shack that protects the property. Here he's driving up the driveway. She had a stalker, stopped at the, at the security shack, and her husband had to be coming home several years ago. And they stopped him, and the husband got out and said, are you lost? Can I help you find something? He said, no, I'm just here to see my wife. And he said, who is your wife? And he, he said, Reba's my wife. And her husband said, oh, we've been married for years. She never told me about you. <laughs> and they realized this guy had actually made contact with her. The celebrity stalker, they're pretty famous. You know, David Letterman had one for years. Um, Stephen King had one for years. Um, oh God, it, it, it's just amazing how many of these these these, uh, these celebrities have stuff. But they're rich. They've got the security. They've got the help. Well, they, they, you know, the sheriff was called. He was arrested in that case. But what we realized in Nashville was most of these people aren't celebrities, so they don't have you know they don't have extra care. And those are the ones where we had the problem. And when we started looking at our stalking cases, we saw. You know, we saw the reasons, and here's why we think you know, the stalking happens. One is, and I, and I don't, I don't want to get into the psychological layers and profiles of stalkers. There are experts who do that: love obsessional, simple obsessional, rhodomania, all that. You know, is what psychologists dream about when they, you know, write their books about it. But for practical police investigations, they all kind of do the same stuff. Uh, Hinkley. We locked up Hinkley in Nashville. Uh, he was stalking Jimmy Carter uh, during the campaign uh, with Reagan. Now, you know, Hinkley shot Reagan, but he was stalking Carter. And we caught him in the airport with, with a three twenty-two caliber revolvers and disarmed him. He, we had no idea who he was. He bombed out of jail. He left Nashville. You know, later on, once Reagan won, uh, we saw you know him get shot at the Hilton. It was Hinkley that shot him. 
Secret Service came back to Nashville and said, we need to see the guns that you seized. And we thought, well, this is really amazing. Well, what was he in Nashville for? Secret Service showed us a photograph of him standing six feet from Jimmy Carter in, in Akron, Ohio, the day before he came to Nashville. So he was obviously stalking to shoot Carter, but he shot Reagan. So we call it we call him a, our bipartisan stalker. He probably shouldn't make light of that. He was stalking the Republicans and the Democrats. I said he shot Reagan. Thank God he didn't kill him. Uh, but he's you know he shot Brady, his press secretary. But anyway, th those people are dangerous. You know, John Lennon's assassin, another celebrity stalker. Um, Bruno, who shot George Wallace. Some of y'all probably don't remember these people. He was running for president. He was shot. He didn't die. When Scorsese, you know, did the Taxi Driver movie. If you're, if you're, next time you see this movie, The Taxi Driver, you'll see Hinckley was obsessed with that. He had this obsession with Joey Foster. And who knows what else was going on in his crazed mind, but... Those people are dangerous, but they don't usually let somebody know. They'll signal somebody, they'll write a letter. So we had some of those. Uh, and then the, the obsessional, I call them, that's the person who you meet at work, you don't know much about them, but they, you go out for dinner or a drink, and you realize, oh my God, why did I do this? You know, uh, And you say, look, I'm not interested, and then they get offended. Are you too good for me? Why don't you return my calls? I've emailed you. And you say, just leave me alone. Then they start causing problems at work. They kill your car. They put sugar in your tank. They slice your tires. They defame you on the internet. These people are real sensitive. I used to call them our narcissist talkers. They don't know what no means. They don't like them. That's a dangerous character. But the power control stalker, I call them, that's the one you know, you live with. They have your checking account number. They are mad because you left, and stalking is the next phase in a violent relationship for them. Uh, this is uh, the offender that killed um, one of our deputies over at Dixon County. Dispatcher was being stalked by her ex. She left the morning shift from the sheriff's office, and uh, the deputy was behind her and didn't think anything about it, I suppose. Stalker sped around the patrol car, cut him off, hit her car, knocked it into a ditch right in front of the patrol car. Deputy pulled up and the uh, guy jumped out and executed the deputy. Never got out of his car. He shot himself in front of his girlfriend. Later, they found out that she was being stalled, but she was too afraid to tell the sheriff she was afraid she'd lose her job. Now, I'm not blaming her. I, I understand that. One of the, uh, and we've seen this dilemma too with our agency. So, one of the things that we did in, in policy protocol. We put a mandatory reporting provision in our policy around domestic sexual violence. In other words, if I'm a dispatcher and another dispatcher comes to work and I see injuries on the face and I say, Janice, what happened? She says, don't ask me. It's no problem. I'm going to my supervisor. I have to, I have to go to my supervisor and say, look, Janice has got injuries. We need to intervene. Uh, it's not snitching. It's just protecting the life of that dispatcher and vice versa. But we've had male police officers come to work with injuries in the bodies who didn't report. Now, this is an odd thing when you see a male officer not report domestic violence. It happens. You start to interview, and you say, look, man, who's hurting you? Look, my wife, we're having trouble. She hits me, and I don't do anything at all. I'm afraid. You know, I just, I don't lose my job. I don't want people to know that I'm being a, you see the stereotype, the stigma that sometimes men experience when they're victims. And we've had this happen. Um, so making it mandatory to report is not going to punish you. It's, we want to help you. We want to make sure that you're okay. Uh, anyway, uh, voyeurs, we've seen those. And voyeurs are interesting because, well, actually, stalkers are interesting, too, because if you've got entitlement with these people, we've had them an interview and said, come on, man, what, what is the deal? Why, what are you trying to tell Betty? Well, what do you mean? Well, if we could bring Betty in the room right here, right now, would you say something to her? Obviously, you have something you want to say to her. Oh, I would. I love her. Oh, good. So you love Betty. I do. So, so, so you're showing your love to Betty because you drove by her house five times last night. Is that what, is that what you're telling me? And you've been texting her for two or three days. That's your love. That's how you show. And obviously, they're confessing to a crime while they're telling you about their repeated harassing behavior. That happens. But the voyeur—that's usually stranger stuff. That's they saw you in a market. 
and they we caught them do it, and they told us they'd done it. They saw her, they liked her, they drove home, they followed her, they came back the next night, they brought her across the street. That's surveillance. Then they're looking at the bathroom, and then they're leaving physical evidence. I don't want to get any further in the case, but you know what I'm talking about. And we used to call those people peeping toms. Yeah. And the old peeping tom, I never liked the term because it's scary. Um, actually, all across the South, there were city codes called peeping tom law. They used to call them that. The problem with that is it, it minimizes, you know, and, and I think the story was, as I remember, peeping tom came from France, I think, was the story. Lady Godiva, yep. Not, not the Chaka Godiva, but there was a person, I understand, named Lady Godiva. She's a tax protester. French government imposed a heavy tax, so she just decided she's going to let everybody in town know how she felt, so she took her clothes off, jumped on a horse, and rode through town. And everybody in town was just so embarrassed, they all looked away except one guy, Tom. <laughs> that was that. That's my, have you heard that story on this monster? Yeah, that was what I understand how it all started. But the problem with, you know, undercutting this guy is that this guy turns into the serial rapist. If you work sex crimes, when you've got unknowns, obviously you're looking for DNA, you're looking for palm prints, fingerprints, trace evidence, anything that will connect you to the suspect. Uh, and detectives will often keep a voyeur file, uh, a parking lot masturbator file. This is where you go. If you've got a, if you've got latents, you're trying to find an unknown to a known. You pull out your lawyer file. That's the first place you go. Uh, and sometimes it worked, and it's worked for us because that turns in, like I said, to the serial rapist. Sometimes that's the reason why they stalk. The other reason they stalk is because they can. Uh, I just reviewed a case for a prosecutor in Ohio, and he just gave the case up to the federal government because it was an Ohio State Trooper. Uh, he was stalking a woman over in Columbus, his sergeant, and um, she reported it to IA, Internal Affairs, and they started the case. She came back in and dropped the complaint because she was afraid of retaliation. So they just dropped the case. We don't do that. We used to do that too, but not anymore. Once the report's made to IA or criminal investigators, they aren't, you can't drop them at an officer-involved case. But they did, and they transferred him from Columbus over to Steubenville and uh, promoted him to lieutenant. And he started following another one. And she went to the sheriff and said, this guy's creeping me out. He, every time I turn around, he's pulling me over. I, I don't know what his problem is. So the sheriff believed her, and they looked at her car. Under the front bumper was a really sophisticated uh, GPS tracking device, military-grade tracking and they got their search warrant together and knocked on the door. He was in uniform. They, they announced, I said, Sheriff's Office, the first thing he said was, you got me. Well, uh, they found the software on his computer. They found all the, you know, purchasing of the, the device. And they noticed that he had stalked her into West Virginia. And that did it. That's interstate stalking. That's a, you know, that's quarter million dollar fine and 10 years in prison. There's no... Uh, there's no parole in the Fed system. It's flat time. So the FBI's got the case now. It's a pretty recent case. But he was using his power as a police officer, you know, to break the law. It can happen. It can happen. So these, these are some of the reasons for stalking. And by the way, when they sent me the trooper case, I ran it through the Shard. Now, the Shard is a new 43 internet based risk assessment for stalking cases. Uh, Dr. Logan created this, and it's amazing. I don't know how she did this. This, this the computer scientist at the University of Kentucky, obviously, really spent a lot of time on this thing. The Taiwanese police, Singapore police are using it now. And what it does, primarily designed for advocates, but police use it too. It will give you, after you answer the forty-three questions, a profile of the stalker and strategies for dealing with the stalker. So, uh, uh, you know, it's got all kinds of, uh, you know, possibilities, probation, parole, law enforcement, advocates, and you go to their website. Well, 
the website's called coercivecontrol.org. Coercivecontrol.org. That's the University of Kentucky site. Or you can go to uh, Sparks. They have it as well. So I and it's well, I think what the help is feeling of being stalked is pretty amazing. That's not like somebody's coming through the wall. <laughs> um, matter of fact, with stalking, I have to tell you, uh, the thing that we really didn't understand early on in stalking cases was the level of anxiety was pretty interesting. We would do the interview with victims and they would say, I don't know what to do. I've got, I've taken medication. I've got a doctor now. I have a gun. I, I don't go to my Methodist church anymore. I, I don't go to Walmart anymore. We weren't letting that go right by without documenting. That's a major mistake. If you time, timeline is what you need to do on a stalking case, you timeline it. And you ask victims when this happened, when this happened, when this happened. It's clear for the court to see that we've got an ongoing stalking here that's really terrifying for victims. Is that the amount? Actually, kind of make themselves sometimes. We had victims walk in with all the documentation about photographs, screen grabs from the phone, presence left at the door. It's, it's, it, it's, it's, hey, by the way, there's nothing wrong with asking the victim, keep up with this. You know, make sure you document the, the data on your phone because sometimes, you know, your phones erase things like text messages. Make sure you're doing that. Um, um, if they want to do a calendar with you, tell me when the first time it happened. There are you know, the Oklahoma Prosecutors uh, District Attorneys Association several years ago fought stalking kits for victims with bags and gloves and disposable cameras so they could document their own stalking. It's interesting uh, uh, because we can't be with somebody 24 hours a day. We just cannot do it. So having them, if they want to, help out with the case, I don't think there's anything wrong with it. But in the last thing on this threat assessment thing, you know, I, you know, for years I've looked at all these threat assessments, and I know some agencies don't use them. And, but you know, the basics here have always kind of been the same with threats. Um, we we hear threats a lot in domestics, but we find ourselves not asking deeper questions like, "Oh, she threatened you. He threatened you. Do you believe it? If you believe it, tell me why you believe it. Was it?" Detailed and specific, that's planning. Uh, is it uh, in writing? Is it, are they leaving physical evidence when they don't care? Uh, have they been rehearsals? Um, are they threatening anybody else? And the reason I bring this up is that when I talk to advocates about this, and this may be a little controversial, we had a deputy killed, serving protective. Jerry Newsom's his name. Jerry granddaughter is my next door neighbor and i knew him he, you know he served process he'd been on the sheriff's office for a pretty good while you know white collar neighborhood um they knew mu not much about the offender um and um they knocked and he came to the door neighbors watched all this happen the interior door opened he talked they talked back and forth it was jerry and his partner and then he shot both of them on the steps he, the, the Jerry's partner crawled back to the patrol car and called for help. Jerry fell back in the yard. The guy opened the door and walked down, stood over him, and they talked for a few minutes. And then he executed him, walked back to his house like he's picking up his Sunday paper. That's what they said. We got there and got all the neighbors out. He shot at us for an hour or so and didn't hit anybody else. Um, and uh, he didn't want to go to jail, obviously. Uh, and so we're trying to stop him from shooting at us, and we accidentally uh, set his house on fire. It was an accident. We're not arsonists, but he caught on fire, and he came out. And we, we, we had a hard time handcuffing him because he was on fire, so we had to put him out. And we had to get a guard hose and hose him down. He looks different now than he did when the whole thing started. 
but um, and he's in prison forever. But when we looked at you know what Jerry had in hand, he didn't have what he needed. Um, he didn't have all the detailed information. I'm not talking about the narrative and more. That's one thing. That's a lot. But he didn't have a detailed background. This guy. There are some shelters now around the country that are actually going above now, and they're filling out what they call uh, tactical service sheets. Now, a tactical service sheet is something that an, a, a deputy or, or an analyst puts together for the sheriff before they knock and serve. And it's above and beyond. The shelter programs are, are sometimes focusing their questions like, uh, does the threat extend to others? And if you, you'd be surprised when you ask a victim that, is he threatening anybody else? They may have a beef with the police or sheriff. They say, oh, yeah, he's Deputy Smith. He said he's never going back to jail again. That's got to go in this, this service sheet. Because I can tell you from experience, when you're knocking on the doors, and all of you officers know this, you can't see them. They see you. That's kind of the worst feeling on the planet. And you're thinking, what in God's name? I, I can't see inside this house. So if you've got somebody that's made prior threats to law enforcement and they know they're about to be served in an order, which they may be losing their guns because of it. Think about that for a minute. It's one of the reasons why victims don't get orders often because they're afraid that the defenders are going to lose their gun rights. They may decide to fight back. And if they do, you don't want to give them an edge, which means if you've got somebody like this, you don't knock on their door. You find out where they work. And you just have somebody waiting on them at their place of business. Catch them going into their Goodyear tire store in the morning. Or, you know, maybe if you know they're coming to court for a traffic offense, you find some way to take away that head. And the way to do that is to sit down with advocates and explain to advocates what it is the police do. Here's how we serve orders. Here's how we do this. Is there anything you can do? We don't want you to violate confidentiality if you decline. But how do we talk? You know, in a way that you can protect my deputies. Because the first time, you know, an advocate says, you know, I've got a direct death threat towards the police, and they call the sheriff, and they say, Sheriff, I'm working with Miss Smith, and she says her husband told her he's never going back to jail. He's never going to be served. The sheriff will appreciate that. They'll, they'll serve them, but they'll serve it a different way. So you see how these things uh, really make a difference when you work together. It just makes all the elements involved safety. Of an officer and safety of the victim as well. Oh, by the way, that's course of control. That's the site where you can go and download the uh, uh, the shark, the shark system. That's H A R P. Really, really amazing what uh, Dr. Lowe has done. And she works very close with as far as the public uh, resources. Okay. Um, couple of things, you know, I think we hit a lot of these already today. The perfect victim, we've heard that before. I, I used to have conversations with my detectives about this a lot and about language, you know, and policing. And I give them a case and I do review with them and I say, tell me about Mary. What's going on with Mary's case? And my detectives say, oh, this is a good case. I got a good case. And I say, okay, really, what's that mean? Um, what does a good case mean, you think? From a detective's point of view, when they say I have a good case, what's that? Lots of evidence? Cooperating victim? Yeah, it was always interesting when I heard that language because I'd want to know what's a bad case look like. So you could hear a little bit of that, you know, I favor the good case. I really don't like the bad case. And you can't do it that way. You have to be open to working these cases. This is a human thing, right? So I don't want to know what that means. And um, expecting that perfect victim, I don't, it's not possible. We're not going to have that perfect victim. Delayed reporting, no doubt about it, it happens. They're afraid, they're right, and they're powerless. This is what we used to see with, with victims. And then the offender, a little different. They plan their crimes, obviously. Uh, they make sure there's no witnesses, they're calculating, testing. The escalate violence over time, we've seen that as well. So considering that, you know, here we are, you know, we're trying to decide who's who, who hit who first, 
who hit who last and how much damage was it offensive was it defensive and then you know it takes us to the wrong decision sometimes i'm not saying it's happened with you i can absolutely testify my agency was doing it i'm not sure what i told you or not but I had a young rookie right off probation he's a captain now good guy college degree year-long training program we turned him loose one night. I had an inner city district. And I backed him up, you know, checking him, make sure he's all right. It was on a domestic, him and his partner. And I walk up to his patrol car and I hear two people talking in the patrol car, and the two officers are standing outside the patrol car. And I thought, what the hell's going on here? So I looked in the back seat, and there on a domestic violence call was the husband and wife in the same patrol car. And I thought, Okay, so I said, what have you got? And the officer said, Sergeant, and he was, you know, I just love this guy. He's honest for days long. He said, I couldn't figure it out. So I thought the best thing to do was just lock everybody up. So, <laughs> okay, uh, well, let me do this. Let me unarrest some people. So <laughs> that sounds odd when you say it, but I got them cuffs off quick. I can tell you that. I unarrested some people. And if you're going to do that, I recommend a back rub, maybe a cup of coffee. Please don't sue me. Um, <laughs> so you, you think that's different when you make rank, you know. And uh, we worked it out. We worked it out. Uh, but I typically did for me, uh, as somebody, Phil Sergeant, plus I was trained in the academy, if he missed this, really good cop. If he was confused, if he was manipulated, about force, we had some work to do. This was a, it was no fault of the office. Not, not, not at all, not at all. We, um, we did a really good job of explaining officers' use of force. That's a big one. I mean, that's, you spent a lot, as you know, we spent a lot of time on that academy. We taught them how to write a use of force report. Big deal. After you use force, you pull out that report. Dear Chief, well, you don't write dear, but you might, depending on the case, you want the Chief to understand why you use force. I was in fear. I used my taser. You know, I was in fear. I used my impact weapon that they, you know, over and over. So our officers knew what fear was. We knew what justified force was. We knew how to document it. We didn't know how to document it when a, when a woman used it. And there are violent women who get arrested and should get arrested. But are all women as violent as men? I think so. Studies don't prove that. Um, but we don't know that law it still is gender blind. You can't just walk into a scene and say, sir, most offenders are male, you're under arrest. Well, that's just idiotic. You can't do that. Uh, we're smarter than that, obviously. But we were watching women use force and we were confused by it. It's a simple stuff, you know, like um, injuries, you know. Um, how do women fight, generally? Unless they've been trained by the military or law enforcement. Physically, how do they fight? Hmm? Defensive. And what, what's that mean, defensive? Scratching? Fighting? Yeah, yeah. Edge weapons? Here's the thing with skin and edge weapons, it's going to be pretty immediate. 20 minutes, 30 minutes, officers on the scene, bite mark, scratch mark, where the skin's exposed. They're going to scroll, scratch your clothing. That's not, it's going to be hands, face, arms, chest, all, you know, close to order. Uh, men don't fight that way. I mean, well, you never say never. I mean, you're probably not going to pull up on a, on a biker bar fight in two men in a parking lot. You know, it's going on. I mean, it's possible, but it's not likely. We're talking blunt force, hitting, punching, you know, strangling, those kind of injuries, soft tissue, soft tissue. Not a lot of injuries unless they hit you in the face, right? That's what you'll see. But it fits the offender because strangulation fits the offender. So does injuries where you can't see them fit the offender. We weren't factoring that in. And the other thing, too, was I would ask my officers about context. Contextual picture, that's the broader view. Let me see everything 
so the judge can say everything, so the jury can say everything, so the prosecutor can say everything, as well as I can do it. Let me bring everything in. We weren't doing that. And I, I used to ask my officers about, let me do a contextual sort of a moment for you policing. And let's say you're on patrol, you're in your patrol car, and you're waiting on the light to change, and all of a sudden this guy, he's, you know, he looks odd, and he steps out in the middle of this busy intersection and is looking at you, and you're in a marked unit, and he starts directing traffic, and he doesn't work for the county or city. So, oh, you think, I got a problem. You call it in, you hit the light, you step out of the car, you make sure you don't get run over by traffic, you say, whoa, hey, sir, don't do that, please. Come here, let me talk to you. Come over here. And he says, okay, and he starts towards you, and he gets about 20 feet away, and his fists come up. Now what do you do? He's coming at you. What do you do? What's your move? I talk back immediately. Guys come at me, send me some help, pepper spray, time, danger. Yeah. You, you're going to say stop, obviously. No, that's yeah. true. And, and you'll do all that. Well. Body cam. You see a boom. I'm got you on candy camera. Stop, 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 stop. They don't stop. And they're still coming now. You got some options here. So I, you know, I do, I, sometimes I talk to advocates about this, and advocates say, well, I just shoot him. And I'm wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Slow down. Slow down a little bit. We got some stuff in the middle, you know, that they have on your belt you got to go for. If I taser, you can say, okay, I'm going to tase you, sir. Stop. Boom. You know, uh, you, you deliver a little uh, Edison's medicine. Uh, don't write that in the report, please. I probably should have said that. Uh, thank you, Judge. Okay, all right. All right. So you get a little tase, he goes down, you tough him, and, the, and you call the sergeant. The sergeant comes to the scene and says, What'd you do? And you say, Well, sergeant, this guy was directing traffic. I didn't want to get run over. Ordered him out of the street, came towards me, and I told him to stop. I tased him. He put his fist up. He furtive movement. I was afraid. I tased him. And the sergeant says, Okay, that sounds reasonable, but show me the weapon. And you say, He didn't have a weapon. And your sergeant says, uh, You're under arrest. Now, what do you do? Hey, don't tase the sergeant. <laughs> that's a lot of paperwork, but no. <laughs> And that, but that's what most people are thinking. Are you out of your damn mind? I have a right to defend myself. That's what we were doing to our victims of domestic violence, actually. When you broke it down, we weren't giving them reasonable, like, self-defense. We weren't. I, I, I analyzed the reports over and over again. And I love my agency. I would do anything my officers. I'm retired. I would today. But they, were, they weren't doing it right. And it was our fault. We weren't training them. And then the other part of this, and I was telling myself, okay, if you, if you think it's wrong now that I brought this up, that we weren't giving people self-defense rights, let me take it another level. Let's say a week before you have the intersection incident, you get a bar fight. You go into the guy's called the trouble. You fuck him, bring him out to him in your bar. Before you pull away, he catches your nameplate and says, oh, officer, win. It's a small town. I'll see you again. You won't like it. Right? What, what if that's the guy in the middle of the street directing traffic a week later? How fast would you use force now? You might use force faster because you got a history with it. And that was the, the beginning of us introducing context into a domestic violence call. What's the context? What was the history? What happened in the past? Was the force that used reasonable? If I can use the equalizer in policing, so can, because so can victims of crime. Makes perfect sense, right? Uh, so, we're asking officers to look deeper. We're asking officers to listen to what the victim has been telling us for years. Here's what they say often. I negotiated with my offender. I appealed to my offender's family. I appeased my offender. I got angry and I got hostile after a while with my offender. I separated from my offender. I withdrew from my family and my offender. And then I used force. And then prisons are full of women for killing their abusers, full of them. And when you look at the cases, you think, my God, what is going on here? He strangled me over and over and over again. I stabbed him, right? And, you know, this is something we maybe had to have a conversation about, about what is justifiable homicide. That's a whole other class, I guess. 
But if you understand the context, the history starts to make sense why people use violence. Now, I want to show you Ty. This is don't ignore his hairstyle. This is a he's got a he's got a 60s, 70s, 80s hairstyle. Okay. Got hair. I'm jealous. But Michael Paymar's interview. Michael's a friend of mine. He he was one of the creators of the Duluth model batteries intervention program. And this guy went through the whole program, and not only to go through it, he started facilitating groups. He, he, my understanding is he runs a program there after all these years, and he now is confessing how he did it. And this wasn't designed to show to law enforcement, but um, Michael did this group, the batteries intervention program. But I asked him, I said, can I use this to show place? He said, well, yeah. He said, let me know how it works out. So this is time. This is, and I'm, it's a long, like, two-hour interview. I broke it up to pieces. This is what Ty says about his experience with police. Yeah, she did. Yeah, she did. And I really could justify my behavior that. In fact, sometimes, um, after I knew that she wouldn't hit me, after I'd hit her, she would defend herself. Uh, sometimes it was almost like I was... Waiting for her to do that. You're just waiting, waiting for her to throw something at me, waiting for her just to brush up against me. So then I could hit her and really feel justified. You know, she hit me first. How many times were the police called to your household? Do you remember? There were. Well, we'll get this. this. This conversation continues, but you heard what he said. I think I've been this too. Confess. Yeah. I justified what I did because what she did. Here's what it sounded like. She slapped me and broke her arm. See, that's not reasonable self-defense. His right self-defense as well, but that's just not reasonable. So we're trying to figure out that predominant, and by the way, the language has evolved. It started out as primary, then it went to dominant, and that's predominant. So the language is changing. Who's the most likely to be That's That's the question. So trying to determine that dominant aggressor has been kind of difficult for us in policing. Not to say it's been a problem with you all, but it's been a problem around the country. I think risk assessments have improved our uh, decisions a little bit because you're asking questions about prior violence. And it opens up the door to examine context, right? So when you got both parties, you know, using violence against one another, you have to be clear who's the most aggressive, who has the most potential. This is not acting in bad faith. This is good faith. I'm just trying to figure out who's who here. Um, there are mutual combat cases, but they're rare. Uh, there are violent women. They're there. They're the exception, not the rule, but they're there. We don't know yet until you start the investigation. Uh, getting a right is a big, big, big deal. Arresting someone that doesn't need to be arrested can cause just amazing problems, you wouldn't imagine. You got a record now, you can't get public housing, you can't get public assistance. It just goes on and on and on. They have to call again, just a mess. That's one of the reasons why I think that patrol sergeants, especially, um, have a duty to be that sort of third eye for an officer. You can't make a decision on PC, call the sergeant. The sergeant should be well trained in this to say, let's run it again. Tell me what you've got. He said this, she said this, he said this, she said that. Let's make a decision. Can't unring a bell once you've arrested the wrong person. And that is what we were experiencing in our jurisdiction. So that criteria we were using just didn't work. Uh, and what we now look at is uh, who's the most aggressive gentleman. That, that's a good start. Uh, what are the witnesses that they're there? Uh, the ability of the suspects strength, size, fighting skills, um, detective orders, past history. Doesn't mean everything, but bringing it all together gives you a closer view of who the offender might be. And then severity of injuries, we see this often. As I said, she slapped me and broke her arm. Uh, who posted the biggest threat? Who's trying to stay out of jail? Um, this is kind of what we saw in the Gabby Petito case. He worked those officers over pretty well. They good officers, but they just they weren't seeing it the right way. I, I will. We're going to evaluate them. That's what we're doing now. 
But he was playing, I think, uh, joking with them, laughing with them. They were, you know, shucking it up. And he says, it's crazy. When you start to hear these kind of derogatory remarks about the question, what happened today? She's crazy. That's not a good starting point for the suspect. Instead of a detailed you know, explanation, sort of what you'll hear, a denial without any details. That's a good clue if you've got somebody that's trying to bait going to jail. Uh, and then the problem, and this was our problem that we experienced, we were looking at who started the argument. Uh, she pushed my buttons. We heard that a lot. And after a while, I heard it so often, I just, I got to where I said, sir, can I, can I take my camera and photograph your butt? I just, I can't, I don't see it on your body. Is it under your clothes somewhere? I don't know where your button is. But that's, that's code talk, obviously, for she's a bitch. And she pushed me too far. And she deserved what she got. I mean, I don't, I don't know, maybe I heard it with, remember when Rihanna got assaulted? I was pretty amazed by that. I mean, one of the biggest music stars on the planet, obviously. Um, what, who was she dating at the time? Was it, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you hear why he slammed her head on the dash of the car? She looked at his cell phone. Yeah. Boom. And people said, well, what, she, what, what did she think was going to happen? What? So um, that's not right either. Who used violence last? Who used violence first? I mean, that, this was the criteria we were using. It didn't work. Who's drunkest? And I think I made, we talked about this earlier, but, you know, alcohol is, a, is about 65% of the call police respond to. There's drugs or alcohol there. We had a real bad habit of walking away from victims who are drinking. Did I, did I ask you, did you drink? Did I ask you that earlier? Do any of you drink alcohol? One person? <laughs> You're all a bunch of liars. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> but no, no. But he, here's the old story. Well, oh, Sergeant, I can't think of reports. She's drunk. She can't talk to her. No, you know how people are drinking, they're lying all the time. I think, what the hell? <laughs> well, do you lie when you drink? No, you get honest when you drink. <laughs> That's why we don't have Christmas parties at headquarters <laughs> No, they got really bad. <laughs> like, damn, man, he was trying to make captain. It's over with now. <laughs> I watched it happen. He, he burned a dog and a chief right there in the corner. Oh, he's got the name. So you got your mind. But that's what alcohol will do to you, right? Now, add alcohol to the dynamics of domestic violence, and here's what you got. If you hit me one more time, I call the police. That's the signal I'm leaving. That's when victims are killed. That's when cops are killed, too. So they'll do that. And then the offender, they'll use violence faster for drinking. We know that. That's accelerated. Um, so alcohol is a problem for us. We have to make sure we don't misjudge that. And then when victims do use violence, when you've got that victim defendant to call them, this is a different kind of language. This is something we haven't talked about much. How do you deal with that? You've got to arrest. You've got PC to arrest. You know, you've got to make that arrest. And then when you do the analysis on it, they've never hit anybody before. This is what we see often with women in prison for murder or violent crime. They get out, they never, never see anything else from them again. Right? So there's a difference here. Duluth's got a whole, and Minnesota's got a whole protocol for prosecutors on how to deal with the victim defendant. That's an interesting process, but there are differences in the two, right? So if you're interested in the policy, let me know. I'll, I'll make sure you get a copy of it. But again, there's a contextual picture. What is a contextual picture of the crime? Uh, one of the ways I like uh, the, the police departments are doing now is to want the state of mind. I don't know, it's small, you can't read it, but that's the strangulation questions inside the field report for the Salem, Oregon Police Department. And what the chief did there, the chief really well trained in um, the neurobiology and trauma. He's trained all of his patrol officers in it. It's really amazing department. And so he's given his officers state of mind questions. State of mind questions are, what were you thinking while you were being strangled? So you can imagine what the victim might say to that. I thought I was gonna die. Um, and, and by the way, not only did I thought I was gonna die, there seems to be, and it, you may have seen this for your strangulation victims. There seems to be a pretty consistent sort of um, 
oh, that's a kind of a thought of uh, uh, phrase or a moment where they do things and they say things that you heard other victims do, like, tell me what was going on, what were you thinking? Well, first of all, he put his hands around my neck and I couldn't breathe and I couldn't believe they were strangling me. And then I believed it and then I went primal. I started scratching and kicking and biting, but I didn't have any energy. And then I felt myself passing out. I saw my family flash before my eyes and all of a sudden I was on the ground. And that's a pretty good description of the faces you go through as you're being strangled, but it also is a good descriptor of someone strangled to unconsciousness. That's another great thing for the courts to see. Um, it's not required, but boy, is it powerful when you write that in court. And that's what uh, Chief Belshaw's done to Salem. He says, I want you to draw me. He and I did a training together uh, a couple of years ago. It was sex assault training. And this guy, he's, he knows more about sex assault than, than I will learn in 100 years. And we were talking to some detectives, and they were talking about their difficulty in, in, in fighting the consent defense in court. It's a real thing. Lawyers have a hard time with it. Um, and, you know, Steve, one of these people who believes if fear is in the room, consent's not there. Does that, that make sense? If you are afraid of somebody, there's not a lot of consenting going on here. And he said, you know, he said, my feeling is that the average citizen who's a juror, you may say in your police report, she said no, but show me what no looks like. I thought that was pretty interesting. He said, when the victim starts to recant, tells you the, the circumstances, you know, when, you, when they say, I told him that I didn't want to go that far. And he did. And I said, I'm not doing this. I kept resisting. And then, you know, I said no. And he, he put more alcohol in my glass. And I said no. He pulled me to the bedroom. And I said no. He pulled my blouse off. And I said no. He pulled my brazil. So you see what you're doing here is you're drawing a serious contextual picture of, of non-consent. This is a drawing of picture of what happened, and this is what sometimes the jury needs to see. And, and I look, you don't know he's going to get on the jury. I mean, mostly it's really good folks, uh, but I'll be honest with you. I, you know, I've, and this, please, please leave this in the room. I, I've had prosecutors tell me, you know, jury selection sometimes is like making sausage. You don't want to see it happen, but you'll eat it when it's ready. Uh, so, because you don't know who you're going to get on that jury sometimes. And you can't expect them to know what we know. So drawing a really clear contextual picture is a really smart, smart thing to do because we're trying to find a PC, we're trying to identify the offender, on and on and locate the offender. By the way, the reason I put locate the offender, the habits my agency got into were they violated the order, we came to the scene, the petitioner violated it, but they left, and my officers were saying, I don't see him, call us if he comes back. That's not good enough. If, and I, this is something that it just, this is hot as fire here. When you have an offender breaking the law, that's one thing, that's bad enough. But when they're breaking the law and they're doing it when the judge told them not to do it, that's a whole different thing. I mean, I, I have to tell you, most people, when they hear the judge say, you got that? You got the rules of the road? Is there, uh, you want me to explain this to you one more time? If you don't understand it, I'll tell you. And they tell the judge, I don't care what you think, you got a real problem on your hands. Because most people do not want to eat jail food. I mean, it's all right, I guess, but I don't want to eat it. I'm not sure you do either. And they know that, by the way. So when they start violating orders, that means they're moving. They're, they're testing you. What's your pursuit look like? That's the critical part of this. Once, it, once the flag goes up, they violate the order, what does our pursuit look like? And there are agencies, including mine, that will chase you down until we catch you. Those old days of letting you get by with violating orders and getting away with it, from my department, are way old because we've had officers killed by these offenders. We've had victims killed by these offenders. When offenders were out on bail, we, we had one of our own judges. I, you know, I, I think about this case, and it just breaks my heart. Sterling Gray was his name, circuit court judge. Good friend of mine. He was one of our police officers. He went to the law school at night, got his law degree, became a prosecutor. From the prosecutor, he was elected to the general sessions bench. From general sessions, he was elected to the circuit court. And this was a high court judge here. He, the next step was the state appellate court. He was on his way. He was beating the hell out of his wife. We had no idea. 
He took her hostage one night. Then we knew. We rescued her. We surrendered. We took his guns. He was not taken to jail. He was taken to a hospital. He was put in a mental hospital for 15 days. His insurance ran out. He left the hospital. The hospital never called us. He left Nashville, drove into Hopkinsville, bought a shotgun, came back, stalked his wife, murdered her, and committed suicide. Complete disaster of a case, right? So there was special treatment for him because he's a judge. We've had police officers kill their family members too, and we gave him special treatment. So it was just a disaster. The very moment these things happen, we should be on quick. I mean, there's no margin error, and which means you know you gotta assess the lethality and danger. It's part of it as well. So um, I got a couple of things I want to share with you about on-scene stuff, but let's take, we're, I think I'm going to pass though. Why don't we take about 10 and I'll wrap this up and we'll talk about lawsuits and leadership and several other things. So take a quick 10, grab you something to drink, come on back and we'll talk. One thing, Frank. One thing. Uh, the law enforcement president is signing on this sheet. It has to sign it in. It's a piece of the MIR script. So I'll put it right up here. Just please do it before you leave. 